Travel the highways to Loretto, Kentucky, and you'll find the Maker's Mark Distillery. A National Historic Landmark, the distillery welcomes visitors from all over the world to experience bourbon the way the Samuels family intended. The bourbon was created by Bill Samuels Sr., but the distillery in the bottle, with each bottle hand-dipped in that iconic red wax, was the brainchild of his wife, Margie Samuels. Today, Margie and Bill's grandson, Rob, runs a distillery and invites everyone to stop by and experience a home place of Maker's Mark just the way his grandparents had, with friends and great bourbon. For their dedication to the craft of quality bourbon making and their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your host for Gravy. Gravy? Gravy. Gravy. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. For this episode of Gravy, we invite you to gather around a boiling pot of pasteles as we work together to understand the complexities of this Puerto Rican dish and the Puerto Rican diaspora through knowledge of one of our colleagues, Simone Delerme. She's the McMullen Associate Professor of Southern Studies and Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Mississippi. Her grandmother still makes pasteles every Christmas. If I ask you to tell me what the Puerto Rican diaspora is in 60 seconds, um, what would you say? Puerto Ricans that migrated from the island to different parts of the U.S. I've heard it posed as islanders versus mainlanders, but there's nuance. I'm identified as a New Rican, born in New York City, but of Puerto Rican ancestry. So yes, Puerto Ricans that migrated from the island to places like Orlando, more recently, Chicago, New York City. And can you talk a little bit about how climate change and particularly the way it's impacting the storms that hit uh, the Caribbean is influencing the Puerto Rican diaspora? There's been an exodus after the hurricane. And I was doing my research in 2010. And even then, one of the pull factors of Orlando, you know, in migration, you talk about push factors or pull factors. Uh, and there were a number of them that I found even as early as the 80s with real estate opportunities, with companies that were actually recruiting Puerto Ricans from the island and advertising the environment in Orlando, the fact that it was similar. You're not going to New York City where it's an urban environment. You are getting the American dream with the front lawn and the two car garage and land. So that's early in the eighties that that began that discourse. And then you have an exodus because of the hurricane where individuals, they had networks and that was something early on too. Uh, people talk about chain migration. I put that in quotations. It has a lot of nuance, the term, uh, but individuals have connections, family members. So it's only increased since the eighties, nineties. In 1898, Puerto Rico became a U.S. territory, and its residents, citizens of the United States. Within two decades, Puerto Ricans began moving stateside in significant numbers, and the diaspora had begun. Over the 20th century, Puerto Rican enclaves developed across the United States, most significantly in New York City. 
But today, the fastest-growing community of stateside Puerto Ricans is in central Florida. Simone de Lerme came to this realization as she was researching for her dissertation back in 2010. I realized there was a pattern based on U.S. Census data. And when I looked further at the data, it was clear that Latinos were exploding in terms of population in the South. So I changed my entire dissertation project and I headed south. I headed to Orlando, Florida to do my field work and really uh, be a part of that migration south and follow it so I could document it. The diaspora has created new ways of marking Puerto Rican identity. Simone grew up with the term Neo Rican in East Harlem. And when she got to Orlando, she started hearing a new one. Now there's all these new terms like Florida Ricans or Disney Ricans. Just, I think, to refer to individuals that are uh, of Puerto Rican ancestry that were born maybe in Florida. Because there's a whole new generation coming up. Uh, and also maybe perhaps to those that have migrated there and are going to call it their home. Because that's one of the things people try to really emphasize to me. You know, we're not temporary migrants. We are here to stay. Besides economic reasons, climate change is another catalyst of this diaspora. Puerto Rico and the rest of the Caribbean are experiencing stronger and more frequent storms. Hurricane Maria signaled a turning point. In 2017, that Category 5 storm spurred a massive wave of migration from the island to the states. Reina Gascon Lopez is a chef who became part of the diaspora when she was a young kid. Her family moved from Ceiba, Puerto Rico, to Charleston, South Carolina. Years later, she knows plenty of people who moved stateside after Hurricane Maria. A huge, huge group of, of Puerto Ricans ended up leaving the island because it just, you know, we weren't getting the help, it wasn't safe, and people were just leaving to, to have a better life. So, Adaptation is an idea that kept coming up the more I talk to Puerto Rican writers and cooks about migration from the island to the states. It's also a common theme running through all other diasporic foodways. Part of adaptation is figuring out how to cook your favorite recipes in a new context. And part is realizing that there are ingredients or dishes you'll inevitably miss. Simone lives in Oxford, Mississippi now. And when I asked her about what food she misses the most, she didn't hesitate. Pasteles. <laughs> and it's really special because uh, even growing up, we usually ate it around Christmas time or New Year's. So that's one of the things I miss. It's, it's those special dishes from your family. Pasteles are like a Puerto Rican tamal, only they're made with a masa of plantains and root vegetables. The masa is usually some combination of green banana, plantains, taro root, olives, red pepper, potato, and pumpkin. Often, pasteles are stuffed with a stewed pork mixture. They're wrapped in a banana leaf and tied with a string. Oh, and they're most associated with Christmas time in Puerto Rico, which stretches well into January. I spoke to Von Diaz, a Puerto Rican-born, Georgia-raised documentarian, who compared the process of making pasteles to tamales. And they're prepared in a similar laborious family style way where you have some kind of masa, right? Some kind of base. And you fill it with stuff and you wrap it in a leaf and you steam it or you boil it. Pasteles are an all hands on deck kind of dish. Reina Gascon Lopez's recipe is 10 pages long. The holidays are usually a time when families have more hands in the kitchen. Of course, that looked different in 2020. Reina told me she spent three days making pasteles with her mom because they were isolated from the rest of the family due to COVID concerns. 
She described how her family typically makes pasteles. It's very labor intensive and you essentially split the work up with all the family members who are helping in the kitchen. So everybody gets assigned a task, you know, as they're prepping the pasteles and there's kind of like a hierarchy when it comes to who gets to do what. So that's why I was super excited about, you know, finally graduating and being able to, to make them <laughs> instead of just like cutting the string or, you know, wrapping them up. Pasteles are also a perfect expression of the Puerto Rican diaspora. On a basic level, eating pasteles is a family tradition that symbolizes home, however far you are from the island. Historically speaking, Vaughn told me they combine the trinity of Puerto Rican foodways, West African, indigenous, and Spanish influences. Pasteles are probably one of the most recognizable traditional dishes that we have in Puerto Rico. They reflect all of the influences of Puerto Rican cuisine. You certainly see African influence. um, In particular, plantains are so often associated with the Caribbean as if they were indigenous to that region. But in fact, plantains were brought to the Caribbean specifically to feed enslaved workers, not just in Puerto Rico, uh, across, across the region. And we know from historians that enslaved African and indigenous workers were largely given plantains and other root vegetables um, as their main source of food, as their main source of nourishment. The method of wrapping the pastel like a tamal reflects indigenous Tainu tradition. The filling is where the Spanish influence comes in. Vaughn explained her family's recipe. You use bits of pork um, that are often marinated overnight and then cooked in sofrito. And then you often use, my family used chickpeas, extra pimentos, pimento stuffed olives, and also raisins, which (laughs) for a lot of people um, doesn't necessarily sound appetizing, but we put raisins in a lot of different dishes in Puerto Rico due to Spanish culinary influence. Food historians aren't certain when pasteles originated. Fictional writing from the 19th century makes reference to pasteles, but they don't show up in cookbooks until the 1930s. Meanwhile, plantains reached the Caribbean as early as 1516 and became a staple ingredient. Jessica Van Dop de Jesus grew up in Guayama, on the southern coast of Puerto Rico, and now lives in Washington, D.C. She's also written extensively about pasteles. Her book, The Dining Traveler's Guide to Puerto Rico highlights the intersection of the Puerto Rican and African diasporas. Absolutely. And I think that is something that gets taken for granted very much. And in my opinion, the the heart of Puerto Rican culture is our African roots. What I appreciate now, I think that younger people are becoming more in tune with that and being proud of because it's like, you know, we were fed this oh, you know, Spain, the motherland, and this and this and that. But that part of our African culture would kind of get, you know, shoved aside. And for me, it's really important, A, because, you know, my father is a Black Puerto Rican. So that's part of, you know, who I am as my genetic makeup. And also I'm from the south of Puerto Rico, which has also a big Afro-Puerto Rican presence. So it's, you know, for me, it's very refreshing that I now see a lot of people when they talk about Puerto Rico talking about that heritage. 
the more I asked people about pasteles, the more Christmas came up. At Hiram Turil's Orlando restaurant, El Cilantrio, pasteles are one of the best sellers during the Christmas season. Hiram moved from Puerto Rico to Orlando 20 years ago, when his banking job offered him a transfer. Three years ago, he and his wife Diane opened El Cilantrio. The restaurant's Christmas plate includes pasteles and arroz con gandules, which is made from rice and pigeon peas. Like plantains, arroz con gandules can be traced back to the transatlantic slave trade and linked to another diasporic dish, Hoppin' John. Hiram told me that pasteles are still the star of his holiday menu. Big time. We, we, have, a, we have a plate that we sell, you know, every week, starting in November to Free King's Day, which is uh, January 6th. Us Puerto Rican, you know, I'm proud that we have the longest, you know, Christmas, you know, in, in the world. <laughs> in my family, we make potato latkes at Hanukkah because they represent the oil that lasted for eight nights in the ancient temple. I naively assumed pasteles had a similar lore. I asked Ingrid Cotto about this. She's a reporter for the Orlando Sentinel, who's written about Puerto Rican food trends in central Florida. Ingrid grew up in Levittown a planned community in the suburbs of San Juan. I asked Ingrid if she happened to know why people eat pasteles at Christmas time, and I got a different reaction. <laughs> I never asked myself that, that question because that's something that is just tradition. You know, the, the, the short answer is, is tradition, right? You can have pasteles all year round. I, I'm pretty sure you can, you, can, you can find it, but Puerto Ricans are very hospitality-oriented. Or, like if you go to someone's house for Christmas, you have your your Christmas kitchen stocked. It could also be that the particular ingredients, um, because it has a, a lot of root vegetables, it has green plantains, and uh, some of them have cassava. It could be also that they're in the right state at that particular season. In terms of symbolism, it's hard to ignore that pasteles resemble wrapped presents. Uh, they're very hard to make, so you have to be pretty special to get that offered. And then they put in there, when they open, it's like a little present. <laughs> so I think that's what it is. I think it's tradition. You don't question it until you no longer have it, if you live in the diaspora. When you don't have it, you treasure it even more. Von Diaz stresses that Puerto Rican cooking has always been a method of finding hope, in spite of difficult circumstances. I think what's become even more interesting for me in recent years are the ways in which people make their food delicious, not just edible, right? And it's like we were talking earlier, this way that enslaved African workers found a way to make use of all these different root vegetables that they were being given as their only form of nourishment. Well, they, you know, it's, they didn't just boil them and eat them boiled, right? They found a way to transform those ingredient, those raw ingredients into something really delicious. And even in islands that lack resources, people will always find a way to make their food taste good. You know, food has to be good to eat. When we come back, we'll learn how and why pasteles are beginning to show up in unexpected places like front yards in suburban Florida. Like in the Bermuda? Mm-hmm. Do you seek adventure and love to cook over an open fire? 
There are few things in life that compare to cooking outside or pulling food off the grill with the perfect sear. For your next outdoor grilling experience, choose Lodge Cast Iron for delicious results that impress every palate. First day of summer, Lodge has a brand new two-piece portable grill for your backyard barbecue. Is it game day? Lodge's dual handle pans fit perfectly on the grill. Dinner party? Try Lodge's brand new grill topper for perfectly seared vegetables. Lodge has the cast iron you need to celebrate each and every occasion. Crafted in America with iron and oil, Lodge's full grilling line is ready to help you bring dishes to life under blue skies, beneath the stars, next to winding rivers, or tucked beside towering mountains. Visit LodgeCastIron.com to see their new outdoor grilling line. For improving our outdoor cooking skills and supporting this podcast, we thank them. As more Puerto Rican chefs and home cooks migrate stateside, pasteles have become more than a family-made dish. Before moving to Durham, North Carolina, Vaughn Diaz lived in East Harlem, where she noticed that home cooks were selling pasteles in the neighborhood. There were a lot of people in that community that made pasteles for sale around the holidays. And I think in many ways that grew out of people not um, having their family close to, you know, go through this ritual with and, and still wanting to have that flavor. When Simone Delermi was conducting her dissertation fieldwork, she began to notice a similar pattern throughout suburban Orlando subdivisions. Yard signs advertised plate sales, offering Puerto Rican staples, and pasteles were often on the menu. Simone says these informal food economies were not always welcome. Yes, uh, sometimes it was a point of maybe, I wouldn't say controversy, but it disturbed some that were maybe long-term residents. Uh, But the yard signs were from yard sales, garage sales, and they weren't perhaps your typical garage sale that you imagine. Certainly not what I've experienced in the South, because you might find a grill in the very front of the lawn with lawn chairs set around it but they would advertise that there was food for sale. And again, that was very different for individuals because we're talking about a suburb with, you know, single family homes and the two car garage and the front lawn. And on the front lawn, someone's selling their food with a sign waving, you know, something that was an eyesore in a community that was a suburb built on luxury and country club living and certainly not on somebody peddling food in the street in their imagination again. This reaction reveals nativism and classism, of course. And Simone encountered that sentiment even among Orlando's longtime Latinx residents, who were reacting to the latest wave of immigration. Since 2010, Central Florida has transformed as Latinx communities become more diverse. Puerto Rican plate sales are just one sign of this transformation. They're a taste of home for the cook and the customer. It was something that transformed the community in terms of the landscape and in terms of food ways. For some, it was celebratory. It reminded them of home, access to food that was familiar and delicious, quite frankly, because I did stop and try. Pasteles are also being adapted to contemporary food trends. Ingrid Cotto reported a story for the Orlando Sentinel in 2019 about a company in San Juan that had started making impossible pasteles. That's impossible with a capital I as in the popular brand of plant-based meat. So this guy, his name is uh, Funky Joe. He's a, he's a DJ. And he turned uh, vegetarian a couple of years back. 
and he actually launched his own brand. It's called 100% HP, which means hecho de plantas, plant-based. He says he actually uh, went to Doña Doñita, which is a, a lady that he that he knows in Comerío, and the lady was like 82. A lady that's been making this for a long, long time, and he took the time and the money to learn how to make each aspect of it so that it will be authentic. And it ended up being such a beautiful story about a guy that decided to, to take that tradition into a, a new era because he feels that not just the ingredients, but the effort that the Puerto Rican, you know, our grandparents uh, put into it mean a lot in terms of who we are as people. Adaptation has taken on a deeper meaning during the COVID-19 pandemic. Because San Juan is a two and a half hour flight from Orlando, Ingrid is used to being able to travel back and forth regularly. She misses several foods that are hard to find in Florida, like pan sobao, a sweetened bread that resembles a po'boy loaf. You're gonna make me sad. As the Puerto Rican diaspora has has grown, uh, we now have a place called Melao Bakery, but I have not found a bread like that. There's a lot of things that you take for granted when it comes to, to food. The pandemic will wane, but the upheaval brought on by climate change will only grow more complicated. Today, many Diasporicans are also climate refugees. For Puerto Rican cooks who continue to adapt on the island, readily available crops like breadfruit are becoming increasingly vital as cooks adapt to stronger storms. Breadfruit can be used to make pasteles, and it can also be preserved to be shelf-ready after a hurricane. Again, here's Von Diaz. Breadfruit um, grows all over the island, and it's, a, I think, a way that folks on the island continue to um, express their, their resilience in, in some really concrete ways. Resilience is one of those buzzwords, like adaptation that takes the onus off of leaders to address the issues that push people to migrate. Economic inequality, hurricanes and earthquakes plagued the island long before terms like climate change and COVID-19 entered the lexicon. Still, the systemic issues that make these problems worse deserve attention. Pasteles remain emblematic of adaptation and resilience, whether they're sourced from bountiful crops on the island or found at plate sales in Orlando. They resemble and represent a gift. The strength of that symbolism goes a long way toward collapsing the physical and emotional distance between Puerto Rico and the diaspora. Gravy was produced and produced very well by Sarah Holtz. Special thanks go to Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez, Nicole Marquis, and Aviva Goldfarb. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. And special thanks for fact-checking go to Natalie Dupree Graduate Fellows Bethany Fitz and Catherine Jesse. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster serves as our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to see our latest films produced for the 2020 Fall Symposium. Listen to Poet Adelimont, explore Afrofuturism with B. Brian Foster, and make a Brunsmeck stew with Oscar Diaz. While you're there, please consider becoming a member or making a donation. 
Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.